0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Mike Smirklow, co-founder and managing director of Next Coast Ventures and author of Mr. Monkey and Me. Next Coast is investing in a new generation of entrepreneurs building disruptive companies in big markets. We discuss why Mike invests in consumer when his operational experience is in enterprise, as well as consumer trends he's passionate about, how he organized a search fund and purchase a company, as well as running it his shape formula and how entrepreneurs could think about mental toughness and his shape formula and how entrepreneurs could think about mental toughness. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you?
1: I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to start from the very beginning of your career. I know that you came from a finance background, and then maybe like your introduction to tech was being recruited by none other than Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. What was it like being recruited by them to join Opsware?
1: Yeah, well, let me give you a little bit of perspective. I mean, one we've got to give a little history lesson. This is 1999, so dinosaurs roaming the earth. I had been, a quick background, I had been the first person in my family to ever go to college, came from a poor background, moved out to the Valley after business school, just immersed in the, the dot-com boom, which is um, mirrors what's happening now in technology and evolution or innovation. But anyways, I'm there, I'm working at Morgan Stanley, I'm in the tech group, I get invited to go have breakfast with Mark. 1999, he had already been on the cover of Time Magazine as the king of the internet, had found Netscape. Um, had sold, had just sold Netscape to AOL for like $10 billion when, when that was a lot of money. You know, that, that's nothing today. But, you know, I go meet with him and I was there as a representative of Morgan Stanley to talk to him about raising capital. And somewhere between the meal, he you know, early in the meal, he says, well, I got a better idea. Why don't you come join us? And, and I just, man, I tell you, I just remember like, taking like a huge bite of my omelet and shoving it in my mouth, like chewing, trying to gain time, right? I mean, it, it would be like Elon Musk right now saying, hey, Mike, why don't you come join my next startup? Uh, so it had that kind of appeal. So I chewed slowly, took my time, and then basically, you know, it's kind of like the Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. I was like, yes, I want to do this. Um, so quite exceptional. Uh, and then he said, wait a minute, I'm actually the chairman, Ben Horowitz is the CEO you got to meet Ben, so I went and interviewed with Ben. I got the job and and jumped, uh, you know, into the river full and fast right away. It was pretty amazing.
0: That's amazing. What was it about you? Do you think that Mark and Ben just found so attractive? Like the kind of like that like first moment? Do you think?
1: Well, I think uh, I don't think there's anything about it. <laughs> that's very very kind. What I loved about working with Mark and Ben was just the, the size of their ambition and their vision, and so they. Hadn't even It was the four founders, Tim, InSIC, Mark, and Ben. They wanted to build eventually what became AWS. We were just a little bit early, but that was the vision. And so Mark had this wide view to say, okay, what am I going to need to make this successful? And one of the things that they established early on was a distribution approach. So a partner and partnerships. So I was brought in to be the business development guy, which was basically go do all the non-technical stuff. So that, that, I think, was more of it just my skill set and, you know, I guess a reasonably good reputation.
0: That's really great. And so and then you end up leaving that company and you found a search fund. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I,
1: I actually was, it was a brilliant run at LoudCloud other than I left early. Before the hard thing, the hard thing. If you read Ben's book, I made it through chapter seven. But basically saw it from concept through IPO, saw the markets go from basically people begging us to give us capital to us begging and decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had one real problem. I didn't have a good idea. Uh, so I came across a vehicle called a search fund. And that's where another way to become an entrepreneur called Entrepreneur Through Acquisition, you raise a small pool of capital and you basically go look for a business to buy. And so I did that in 2001. I started it right after 9-11, called hundreds of businesses and got very lucky. I found a great tech enabled service, uh, services business called Service Source. It was located in San Francisco, and I bought that with a business partner in 2003.
0: What was it like raising, or how does a search fund actually work? Because we never really covered it on this show, and I'm just pretty curious. Was fundraising to raise the actual fund in order to then buy service stores? Was that quite hard to do?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It was a really hard time to do it because it was, again, right after 911.com .com. It was a really interesting time in the capital markets. Tech was not popular. Yeah, well, yeah. it had popular, then it had gone through this way. But for those who are under, I guess, under 40, there's this thing called markets, and sometimes they explode, and there's recessions. I know that's a very foreign concept to the, to the younger generation, but it was in the heart of, literally, we were starting a war at the U.S. We had had this horrific terror, uh, terrorist attack The dot-com bumble had exploded. There was no debt available. So it was a really tough time. But I was able to, with a business partner, what you do is you raise a bunch of, you raise about, we raised probably $400,000. You sell units. And basically what those units do is they give you two years of pay your rent, pay yourself a meager salary and money to diligence and look for companies to buy. In exchange for that, investors then get the right of first refusal on any company you find. So it's like a pledge fund. Uh, and actually, Next Coast Ventures, we actually have a, a fund dedicated to this. And full disclosure, now the market's moved a bit. But at the time, we raised it from 15 different individuals. They gave us capital. We went off and, you know, started eating macaroni and cheese for dinner again and, and cold calling businesses and got real lucky and found a great business in San Francisco.
0: That's amazing. And so... Once you purchased ServiceWorks, you became their CEO. I mean, what was it like growing that company um, all the way to public? Maybe what were some of like the lessons that you learned along the way?
1: Yeah, it was great. Really, I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. So we were able to buy this business. It was about thirty employees, a couple million in revenue. I, I bought that with a firm called Houghton Partners. Then I raised venture capital from uh, Benchmark, Bruce Dunleavy, one of the founders, joined my board. Then General Atlantic, and then took it public in two thousand eleven. By the time I retired, it was 3,000 employees, 300 million in revenue, at one point, um, almost $2 billion in market cap. So it was a phenomenal ride. Um, what I really learned about it was, one, the importance of culture. I learned a ton about sales and go-to-market. Uh, and most importantly, I learned that entrepreneurship is a wild-ass ride, uh, good, bad, ugly, and different. And I thought I was prepared for it, having watched Mark and Ben. And uh, man, it was you know harder. It was both harder and more enjoyable than I would have ever imagined.
0: With all of your you know enterprise SaaS experience and being there from the beginning when it came to the cloud, first of all, what attracted you to investing? Since we talked a lot about you as an operator, and then also, why is consumer attracted to you whatsoever?
1: I mean, first of all, multiple questions on, on the investing side. I basically one, uh, I did thirteen years as an entrepreneur. It damn near killed me. I was at the end of my rope and I knew, given my personality, I knew how hard entrepreneurship was. And I didn't want to go back to do it again, to be very candid. Secondly, I thought that I could apply some of my learnings and skills and capital through NexCO's ventures. And that's really what I wanted to do, to move to the, you know, advisor slash capital provider role. So that's the why invest. In terms of consumer, it's really funny. I mean, I am a traditional enterprise background, go to market. I've been very fortunate that I've met some amazing entrepreneurs who happen to be building great consumer businesses, and they overlooked my lack of experience in consumer. I think based on my own experience in entrepreneurship and some of the other areas of expertise, candidly. So I've been a, a reluctant consumer investor, uh, but it's you know served served my firm quite well, at
0: candidly. What were some of the? This investing in consumer. I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show. Is quite different to investing in you know an enterprise um, top down business. What are maybe some lessons that you've learned as a consumer investor or just, especially like when you, when it comes to diligencing maybe like consumer companies versus enterprise?
1: I've got a great story about an investor Who's all consumer, Eric Kim from Goodwater. He and I on our board together here in Austin, and he's a wonderful investor. Great guy to have on your show. But Eric, you know, would be talking about these terms and I would just be sitting there going, wow, he knows a lot more than I do about consumer. But, but I do think where I, where I've been able to, um, help and where I get excited about it is whether it's direct to consumer or B2B, the same attributes have to hold true. And that is this, you have to have an experience. It can be a product, it can be a service, it can be a piece of software that is significantly better than the current alternative. And so part of my obsession as an investor is all around the customer experience. And again, take customer, director of IT, head of marketing, Mike buying something online, the same attributes have to be old true it has to be a passionate experience it has to be enough to grab your attention and it has to be a different enough from your current experience to change your behavior and that is really freaking hard to do
0: what are maybe some examples on the consumer side when we talk about like what what's examples of like a good customer experience that you've seen that maybe it ended up in an investment or even maybe you just admire the company deeply
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you about one one investment I did make, and I can talk about non-investments, but I'm an investor here, luckily, in a company called Everly Health. It used to be Everly Well here in Austin. I had just gone, I just had the experience. It's amazing. When I met the founder, I just had the experience of, this is a consumer testing business. So I just got my annual physical. Doctor says, hey, go get your test. I drive to a lab. I get the lab. I get the results. I get some pink paperback from my doctor. My doctor says everything's fine. What? (laughs) Why did I just go through that? Comparatively to EverlyWell, which you can go to everlywell.com. You can choose a test for whatever your attributes you're concerned about. You get the test at home. The packaging is amazing. The sample testing is easy. You then send your sample back. You never leave your house. And lo and behold, they give you a rich readout, an internet-based readout that is, helps you make decisions about your health. And so I bring that up because A, I am an investor in full disclosure, but two, a really good example where. The experience wasn't just kind of better. It's like night and day better. And that company has grown incredibly well because of it. But I think that to me is a key. Again, B2B or B2C, it doesn't really matter. It has to be a differentiated experience. And I can go on and on about other companies in our portfolio or in my own consumer life. And I think it tends to resonate when you go, wow, how many times did I go, that was radically different than what I'm experiencing now? Enough, again, to make me change my behavior.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really that's a really good point. I'd also love to know too, how do you think about does a company in order to be successful, can they just have that purchasing experience be incredible, but actually there maybe there actually isn't that much innovation in the product itself in order for you to find attractive? Or how do you think about those two things tied in like like experience and the actual nuts and bolts of the product when it comes to differentiation?
1: Yeah, I mean I think in the perfect world, right, you have both. But I actually think one of the things that is often overlooked is brand tied to experience wins the day more often than not. And I'll give you a really dumb example of a business I'm not invested in but I'm a big consumer of. You ever heard of Gooder sunglasses down where you are? Yeah. You ever heard of this yeah. company? Yeah. Right? $30 sunglasses, they fold, they break, they're easy, whatever. I've got four kids. so. I'm like, a, every six months, I go out and buy like 10 pairs of Gooders. Don't comment on my parenting skills. But basically, it's like they're cheap sunglasses. Easy, fun, have them around the house. Kids break them, lose them, don't care, right? There's no mission behind that business. I don't think it's saving the world. But I know if I go to Gooder, I know I'm going to get the sunglasses. I know they're going to be what I expected. 100% consistent with the brand and what my expectations are. Change my behavior. Why go buy a $200 pair of sunglasses when I can buy Good $30 sunglasses, polarized, all the good stuff, and I wear them all the time. It's a really simple example of just brand and experience
0: change behavior. That's a really good point. And I mean, thinking about physical products as well, how do you also think when we think about experience? And you know how the actual consumer bought the product itself now with the rise of you know online D2C in the past 15, 20 years. How do you also think about like if you're looking at a company that, because there's been a lot of companies that have done very, very been very, very successful at the product wasn't exactly innovative themselves but the how their distribution and and kind of maybe like the experience of, of purchasing the product was quite different in that they people were actually able to purchase the product online it was more convenient but now because of you know Facebook and Google ads kind of drying up when it comes to arbitrage opportunities those growth opportunities really aren't there so I'm kind of curious on how you think about as well distribution today as like a differentiator for a brand
1: Again, there's certainly people with a lot deeper experience than I have, but I think your, your first point was a really salient one, was early days of D2C, if you go back to uh, Warby or something like that, where it was like, hey, we've got a, an arbitrage opportunity, we're going to make it easy for you, we'll send these to you, and, and all that good stuff. I mean, that that certainly is gone now. I think the bigger issue becomes what, what used to be called omnichannel, which is how does your brand transcend every aspect of the experience, physical e-com, distribution, packaging, all of those things, I think the real winners will be able to, to do that, plus have a community. Community is a weird word, but an element that says, yeah, this is con- consistent across all aspects of my interaction. Again, something that kind of simple to, in concept, but again, really, really hard to do. I'll give you an example. We've invested in this company here with an amazing founder called Box Wine, direct consumer wine. The concept, you say, well, how hard is it? They're doing a subscription service. They're manufacturing their own wine in Napa, California, and then sending you in a box, B-O-X-T every month, a a thing of wine, a thing of wine. The hard thing is consumers love it because it's disruptive and different. But when you think about building that business, there are, there's a fault line everywhere you look, the engagement has to work, the consumer ordering period, the wine has to be good, et cetera, et cetera, all of it has to be done. And if you do that, right, it's a big business. But you screw up one of those, and you know it, it's, you're done. And that's where I think the new world of consumer is is much different than the I can do some search word search optimization and drive you to you know buy Warby Parker sunglasses. Nothing against Warby Parker, great business.
0: How did Next Coast Ventures begin? Uh, Nexus
1: Ventures began uh, six years ago when uh, a longtime colleague of mine, a gentleman named Tom Ball, who had been in Austin. I was moving from, first of all, I was moving from the Bay Area to Austin. I lived in the Bay Area for 17 years, loved it, still do. But we just had, my wife and I just had our fourth child. I was done being an operator. I wanted to start a firm. And in pure luck, um, my co founder was, there was a firm called Austin Ventures in Austin that was imploding. Um, Tom Ball, my, my co founder, was leaving. And we looked at it and said, gosh, Christian, before COVID, we said, what if we brought some of the Silicon Valley mindset to Austin? What if we had a firm that was called, the tagline was built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And what if we did that in Next Coast Markets? And Kingly, when we did fund one five years ago, LPs were a little bit like, ah, I'm not sure this Next Coast Market is that big. Fast forward now. Between being in Austin and COVID, it's been remarkable, and our, our timing was quite good. So big change, but we're now seeing the entrepreneurial activity, the inflow, the movement of talent, not just to Austin. Austin is certainly a beneficiary of it, but in next-ghost markets, it's been quite extraordinary.
0: It's also interesting, too, because, so I mean, of course, you were way ahead of the trend of moving out of San Francisco. Uh, that, that seemed to happen during COVID. Not everybody, but certainly um, a few folks. It's interesting, too, because I've heard investors saying that some of them won't even touch Silicon Valley-based companies just because the prices are so high and so expensive. And some investors saying that they believe that the real opportunities are actually in the middle of America, not on the coasts. When it comes to sourcing and price, what's your approach?
1: On your first point, I mean, I I love the Valley. I go back there once a month. I just think it's two different games. I really do. I think the bifurcation continues to expand. And you say, you know what? What Mark and Ben and Andreessen and Horowitz or Benchmark are doing is different than what Nexco is, just point blank. So for us, um, we are really looking at, it all starts with the entrepreneur. So how big is the market? What's the solution? But is this uh, what we call a glass eater? Does this entrepreneur exhibit the cat attributes that says he or she is going to build an amazing business and do everything they can within legal and ethical boundaries to do so. So that's our first and foremost, that's our, our true north, if you will, in terms of valuation we're going to pay market prices. I think you have to be very careful not to get caught up in, Hey, I'm I'm not, I'm a value investor. That's not what venture is about. So we pay market prices. I just think that because we're in a, a market that's a little bit less expensive, better quality of living, lower cost for most of the talent we can have, we can invest in businesses that don't consume capital as much as you do in the Valley. And I think that's where therefore you can take valuations at a, Modestly lower level, but at the end of the day we're market. We're not market price setters. We're market price takers. Whatever the market is, if we see a great business, the great entrepreneur, that's where we're going to. We're going to pay what what the market what the market bears.
0: What do you see like the impact of COVID was? Was it was it also that did you see on the investor front that investors were actually thinking then outside of Silicon Valley and maybe the coast into other areas? Like, what were your general like takeaways on the professional from COVID?
1: Well, well, first of all, it was pretty interesting, Mike. I mean, we had a lot of LPs uh, who had five years ago said, ah, I'm not sure about that coastal, non-coastal stuff. A lot of them moved to Austin. So it's been an ironic moment uh, out talking to them and they're like, oh yeah, actually, you guys are right about this. But I think, you know, for the most part, one, it was good. We're thematic investors. Some of our big themes have been future of work, future retail, healthcare hacking. Those were our, our 2015, 16 pre-COVID themes. Very good themes to be investing in, and I think like others you've had on the show said some some things that we thought would take eight to ten years got accelerated to eight months, which was wonderful for most of our portfolio has performed very well despite the you know backdrop of a global pandemic. I think the biggest thing is it just shifted. We've got this uh, framework here which we've been doing now for the last twelve months, which is what are the things that will snap back when we thought we were coming out of the pandemic that we're back in it. But you know, one of the things that'll snap back. What are the things that will never come back and what are the things in the middle and really wanted to be investing on that, on that third bucket. And so we've been consistently looking at things like, like music, sports, etc. Once we, now as we get through AMI, um, the latest, latest part of the pandemic, you know, once we get back to that, you're still going to want to go see live music. You're still going to see sports going back to an office, commuting 50 minutes to get to an office. I don't think it ever goes back telemedicine. I don't think it ever goes back. So The thing for us is COVID has been disruptive, but from an investment perspective, trying to think about ideas, make sure they're not just episodic, hey, this is interesting for the next 12 months, but not forever. And looking at where consumer behavior has changed forever um, or has dramatically changed versus, hey, it's temporary.
0: Those are all excellent points, you know, of course. Music's coming back. Sports going to come back. Traveling for sure is coming back, and then also working in the office probably not as much um, as you say. Like people don't want to commute; they they like work from home, and that makes a lot of sense. I remember you. I think before we were talking about winning today in consumer, that you have to be very community oriented and community focused, as opposed to focusing on you know like social media and, and what have you. How do you think about community today? consumer companies. One thing I would I would say, and
1: this is maybe uh, controversial in some regards, is differentiating that word community can mean a lot of things. Um, in one hand it can mean save the rainforest to use a you know benign example or another thing can be my customers love me, they feel an affinity towards what I'm doing and they want to be part of it and they have a loyalty. I really am I'm a big believer that on the save the rainforest part It's a nice to have, but it's not a requirement. And now some people may disagree and I'm not, I'm taking nothing away from companies that are really having impact and doing great things, but I don't think the I'm here. And every time you bought like Tom's shoes back from 10 years ago or whatever it was, I think that was an interesting way to get customers excited about it, but now it's become table stakes. And so just because you have a new X, Y, Z and you plant a tree every time, I don't think consumers personally We'll put long-term value on that or make a decision just because of that. And I think when I see entrepreneurs at times, I see sometimes too much of a focus on that. It's great that you're doing something to make the world a better place. That's phenomenal, but don't, but, but I think the real value creation would be is when you have consumers that absolutely love what you're doing. Again, it's significantly different than what they were doing before. And so they're willing to change their behavior, not just once or twice, but they're going to do it over and over again. Like change behavior once, try something is very different than this is a different way for me to live my life, if that makes sense.
0: Do you think that in order to win in tomorrow, that you actually, for your business, you actually do need to, to stand for something, whether that it's sustainability or what have you? I think it's
1: phenomenal. Don't underestimate that. It is phenomenal. It can be a massive part of a story and consumers want it. So to start there. What I'm differentiating is I don't think you should hang all of your value proposition on it because I don't, I think consumers are fickle and that's my, my kind of cynics view. So yes, do something to save the world. Yes. Make it sustainable. All of those things. I think there are table stakes, but as an entrepreneur, don't assume that just because you do that, that's going to drive consumer loyalty because I don't think it's enough to get, have people consistently change their behavior. And I see that mistake, by the way, I see that with a lot of entrepreneurs. That will will come in as their key value proposition of like, hey, we deliver X, Y, and Z, and and here's why it's better for the planet. That's amazing. That's awesome. But is what you're delivering dramatically different? Because just because we do something different is, I don't think consumers, again, I think they're fickle.
0: No, that's a fair point. Because I'll also... Like that's great that you're doing something for the planet, but what are your competitors doing as well? Are they also doing something great for their competitors? And if it's just a little bit better for the planet, that's great, but will consumers actually know the difference? Are they going to take the time to actually go through that whole education uh, process, actually learn a lot more about your mission? Possibly, but you have to have, as you say, like an amazing experience or just an incredible product or just something differentiated in in that factor to win.
1: And be maniacal on this term of of moat, which is an old Warren Buffett term, but like how easy is it? And this is where I also, with entrepreneurs, and that, you know, I love entrepreneurship. I'm such a passionate believer in it. But it's like, do you have something that is sustainably different, that competitive moat, or is it easy to copy? Because if it's easy to copy, then you've got a temporary head start, and you better run really fast.
0: When entrepreneurs are pitching to you, what are maybe some of like the common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make?
1: Well, I think that, you know probably the biggest one I see is failing to think about competition. I think there's a general, uh, and, and here's what I mean by that. Like I actually think the biggest I've written a blog on this At my write, up my spare time, I write a blog at mikesmerkula.com. But I think the most overlooked competition is inertia. And so I, I really, when I look at it is everyone has this two by two chart that says, Oh yeah, here's X, Y, and Z. And we're better than that. Da, 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 da. What I think is often overlooked is inertia. And this gets back to the changing behaviors, whether again, it's enterprise or consumer, but how do you overcome the inertia? I don't know, Mike, are you a busy person? Do you have a bunch of free time to go research a bunch of products? I don't. And so, and I'm, and by the way, I'm bombarded with thousands of inbounds from text messages to emails to what have you, trying to get my attention. And so my biggest push for entrepreneurs is think about how you break through the noise and how you get through inertia as a real competitor, not just the, you know, we're better in XYZ and faster than ABC.
0: I'd love to kind of like dissect your shape formula. If you can kind of let us know about that and how you think about mental toughness, as well as since you've been there as a CEO, how you think about this this topic.
1: I wrote a book called "Mr. Monkey and Me: uh, A Real Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs," which is an ambitious title. Um, because I don't think, I think my entrepreneur career was interesting, but it's certainly not my joke. I'm like a C-list actor in Hollywood. Like I did pretty well, but I'm not in the, uh, in the hall of fame category, but I wrote the book and embedded in the book is a shape formula because I was sick of the shit I was reading. I don't want to say shit on this podcast, but I guess it did. I was sick of like, there's two, the, the content coming at entrepreneurs was two categories. It was how to build a business plan. Great, helpful, how to write a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there was this other stuff, which I called entrepreneur porn, which was the seven things that Elon Musk does before breakfast. Well, if you're starting a business and it's four in the morning and you can't raise capital, blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit what Elon Musk does before breakfast. It doesn't help me. And so I saw this streamline of no one was really talking about the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And so I wrote this book, again, Mr. Monkey Me, and it was to talk about my own experience and a lot of failures, what I saw from great entrepreneurs like Ben and Mark among others, and then what I see every day in my day job with folks like Adele who introduced us from Eternava or Julia from Everly Well, Everly Health, like I've seen great mental strength from those entrepreneurs. And so what I did was I talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs to finally answer a question. I said, what do you think the most important things are? And it became self-awareness, help, authenticity, persistence, and expectations. So I codified that into a formula. I put it in the book and I try to get very tactical and specific minders for entrepreneurs to develop this mental toughness because in my core, I see it every day. Big market, great idea, three or four companies going after that same idea, somebody wins. And more times often than not, the somebody who wins has the mental tenacity and toughness to keep going.
0: What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? <sighs>
1: A lot of things that might change about venture capital, but um, listen, I, you know, it gets it gets well deserved if you go onto Twitter and any other social media gets lampooned as it probably should. I think the biggest thing is, um, and I, we try and do this with every company we invest in, it's just being disclosure about what my job is. You know, I think there's a lot of buzzwords out there about founder friendly and we try and be founder friendly, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, and I do this with every company we invest in, I say, you know what my job is. Here's my job. LPs give me money. They expect to make me to make eight to 10 times my money over a seven to 10 year period. And they expect me to lose a bunch of money along the way. And if I do that right, my fund will generate a, you know, four to six X return. That's what my job is. Now, as I break that down, that means every entrepreneur, and this is what I think might change is just full disclosure on this. I invest in a business. I'm looking, depending on stage, I'm looking to make eight to 10 times my money. I'm looking to support that entrepreneur in every way I can but I also have a portfolio of companies that I have to oversee. That's the no bullshit what a BC does. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, fluff out there around other things that you could do, but that's what my job is. And the more I'm specific and direct with an entrepreneur, so he or she understands that, I think the relationship between entrepreneur and venture capitalist can be much, much better. And so that's the one thing that I would encourage any entrepreneur. If you're taking venture capital, ask that person. What are your return expectations? What's your timeline? Where do you think this thing will be in five to seven years? And if you do that, then transparency happens. It tends to be better relationships.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: Oh man, so many good books. Um, And I I actually, I went through your list. I love the book. I think I've read almost all the books on your list um, that that other people called out. So great job. I love this question. I think it's phase of life. I think for me personally, a book I've read, I just reread it. A Brazilian author, called, uh, the book is called The Alchemist, Paulo Cajelo. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. It's like one of the most widely translated books after the Bible or something like that. But it, it's just a magical short book about a shepherd. Um, for me, as I get older and cynicism starts to creep in, it reminds me about following your dreams, staying true to your heart, imagining the possibilities. So I don't know, it's just my favorite personal book. It's a annual quick read on the personal side, on the professional side, man, there's been so many books along the way. I'd say now probably trillion dollar coach, which is the story of Bill Campbell written by Eric Schmidt. Bill was, I was fortunate. Bill's on our board at loud cloud. I write about in my book. He was the one who was a big push for me to actually get a coach. They called him the coach. But the reason it inspired me uh, today is at this point in my career, he gave back, he had a huge impact on a ton of entrepreneurs. Um, the folks at Twitter, to Google, to Steve Jobs. And he did so not seeking fame or monetary. He did it because he liked the coach. And so I think about this phase of my life, man, if I could be 100th of what Bill did to uh, his impact on entrepreneurs, that's what I'm aspiring to do.
0: That's amazing. I love that. No, I mean, like, I think the alchemist has been mentioned before, which is great. And Trillion Dollar Coach, I think this is the first time that I brought it up there. So really excited to add that to the reading list. And I really like what you said about Bill, about how he just loved coaching. And that was the reason why he, he didn't do it for any of, the, any of the fame or glory, which I think that as one approaches their career, that, that, that they should really be thinking about that.
1: Yeah, I encourage everyone. I mean, he was a guy when I, I tell the story to book, I'll say it shortly, but he, I went and met with him. I was having a hard time. And he's like, why the hell didn't you have a coach? Steve Jobs has a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. Why doesn't Mike Smirkle have a coach? Well, that's pretty good advice, Bill. But, but I really do think entrepreneurship um, is hard. Having someone there to help you along the way and not just be emotional support, but really help you think about how you get better at your job is, uh, can also be a big difference between success and failure.
0: Oh, that's a really, really good point. My final question to you is, with all this being said, what's maybe one or two pieces of advice that you have for founders currently?
1: Yeah. um, And and again, shameless plug to to Mr. Monkey and me, but I mean, that's what I wrote the book for. So shameless plug. Um, But but really my biggest advice for entrepreneurs is the first, all of this starts with self-awareness. And it's one of the like, like all piece of advice, really simple to, to hear, but hard to do. If you can try and get a true understanding of what your strengths and weaknesses are, what motivates you, what demotivates you, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And not what your mom tells you are good at or your significant other, but like realistically, what are you good at? I think if you can do that, it becomes the foundational building block for a bunch of other aspects of leadership. So where do you need to get help? Where do you need to, how do you show up as an authentic leader, et cetera, et cetera. But self-awareness, I might argue, Mike, it might be the biggest differentiator between success and failure. It's just, do you understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, what your strengths and weaknesses are? So... Any tools that you can find to understand yourself a little bit better, to know where you again where your strengths and weaknesses are and how you can develop, uh, to me might be the, the first step I first piece of I'd give to any I
0: think that's a great, great piece of advice. I'd also just add too, Self-awareness in terms of what you're actually trying to achieve with your business as well. Are you trying to make a massive business that has incredible impact? Um, or are you trying to make a still a very, very successful business, but be not one that needs venture capital dollars, right?
1: Yeah, the last thing I'd say, like the world needs you. That's my other push. The world needs entrepreneurship now more than ever. We need more entrepreneurs. We need more diversity in entrepreneurs. We need more entrepreneurs who are successful, that don't go off the rails. So my other push is keep after because I'm a passionate believer that any of the problems we're saving, solving in the world has a ton of problems right now. Are you going to bet on the government? Are you going to bet on a not-for-profit? Are you going to bet on an entrepreneur? A hundred times I'll bet on the entrepreneur.
0: I love that. I love that. Mike, this has been such a fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Great questions.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Mike. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Mike Smirglow. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.